I want to go ahead and introduce our guest speaker this morning. Uh, we are excited to have Blair Bryan with us this morning. Blair is a founding member of Heritage 21, which exists to encourage and facilitate biblical stewardship by supporting Churches of Christ in rejuvenating and resourcing a future empowered by the Holy Spirit. Blair has a deep history with the Churches of Christ, is a fourth-generation member, and has served as an elder, a deacon, a building committee leader, which he can tell you more about here, uh, and a Sunday school teacher. For seven years, Blair directed a Christian mentoring program for Harding University, and Blair has attended and worked with congregations in many states, including North Carolina, Texas, Oklahoma, and California, where he served as a deacon for a church you may have heard of, the Mission Viejo Church of Christ, which he served here back in the 90s. I know some of you guys uh, remember him, and I'm sure excited to, to see him. Uh, Blair and his wife Karen have four grown children, and we are just very excited that you're here with us this morning, Blair, and if you would give your attention to him. Good morning. Um, in the fall of 1989, um, I parked my little Toyota Corolla in that parking lot right out there. And I got out of it, and it was me, my wife, Karen, and our two-year-old son, Austin. And we had just moved to Orange County, and we came to visit Mission Viejo Church of Christ. And we fell in love. Uh, for the next, it was just an incredible period in our life. Uh, we fell in love not only with the church, but also with the people that were here, more importantly. We had a much smaller auditorium right over here at that time. Much smaller. This is so nice, by the way. Uh, I just can't get over it. Uh, it was much smaller then, uh, but we had, we had so many activities. If you go out on the history board out there, I feel like that's part of my life out there that's in your lobby. Uh, whether it was children's theater workshop performances or teaching a teen class, which we did that many times, uh, teaching adult classes, uh, it was children's music companies, being at those performances and being our kids being a part of that. I can't tell you how many small groups or life groups, I forgot what we called it back then, that we had hosted at our house and how many meals we served. To, and it was just an incredible time of our life. And uh, we had so many friends here. And so I want to tell you that I am back home today. And I thank you for that. Um, we were here about six or seven years. Um, we poured ourselves into this place. We were not just attenders. We were participants. We were with our brothers and sisters living life together when we were here. Our family ended up having to move to Charlotte, North Carolina. It was a situation that needed to happen, and we still live there today, and it's been great for us. But this place changed our lives forever. In so many ways, like for instance, we and I, and I said we pulled up in our little Toyota Corolla with the three of us got out of the car. When we left here, we had a really big Suburban, first of all, and there was Karen and I, and our four kids, and our big collie, uh, which we drove back across the country. That's what we left here with. So you really changed the dynamics of our family by being here, for sure. Um, and so, but when we left here, I realized we left our heart here too. 
We didn't, we left part of it here with you guys, and you may not have recognized it or even know us, but uh, just to know what this place meant to us. I never expected that I would be here delivering a sermon. By the way, I don't know if you know it, but I'm not a preacher, okay? I'm not. And um, in a minute, you're about to recognize that, really, it's gonna be very apparent. <laughs> Um, my profession was a business guy. I was in commercial real estate there when I moved away from here. I am very hopeful today the Holy Spirit will be with me and somehow empower me to do something probably better than I can do as an individual for my sake, but probably more importantly for your benefit, <laughs> honestly. So I pray that you will be with me in that and that you'll pray for the Holy Spirit to be with me. And you know what? Um, I want to make sure I say something here that's very important always. My goal is to encourage you. My goal is to challenge you. And if I say anything that offends you, I, am, I want to tell you, Rob, I'm so sorry. I don't mean to do that. It is not my intent at all. But I want to encourage you and challenge you today. Today I'm here with some of my dearest friends. Uh, I'm going to take a moment to introduce, first of all, Mike O'Neill. Um, if you've been in California for a good while, you might recognize his name. He used to be executive vice president for Pepperdine University. Then he went off to become president of Oklahoma Christian. He's a Stanford Law, uh, you know, graduate. Uh, just a brilliant man. And more importantly than anything else, he's my friend. And he's been such a huge part of my life. And Mike and I, and I'll talk a little bit about this, serve as trustees with an organization I'll talk about here in a minute. And also next to him is Robin and Paul Maynard. Uh, now, I've known Paul since I was in college. And Robin I got to know, actually, when I was here, because her parents were Pam and Leon Ross. Leon was an elder here, actually with Bob Crawford uh, at the same time. Uh, and, so, and so Robin is here. Robin and Mike and I serve with Heritage 21, and this is an organization that works to either renew churches throughout the country, Churches of Christ, if there's any way we want to renew them, because frankly we need that in a major way. And if we can't, if it's just not possible, we look to help them through the process of repurposing their assets to replant the vineyard. We think it's very important to continually re be replanting the vineyard. And so that's what we're about as well. So we go, we were in the last few days, we, well, yesterday we were in San Diego. Uh, later today we'll be in LA. We'll be in uh, all the way up to Ventura County on Tuesday, but we'll be all through this Southern California area. I think we're gonna meet with church leaders from about 40 or 50 different churches by the time we're done over a four day period uh, to touch them, to try to figure out how to help them. Uh, we are very much about Southern California, how can we help? And so we have deep history, as you can tell, uh, and, and interest in Southern California. And frankly, we're, and that's why we're here. And so as a part of this, I was blessed because Ken asked if I would be willing to come and speak today. And oh my, I don't think I've ever been, uh, uh, been given such a great opportunity as this. And so I'm just really grateful to be here. Um, I recently heard an interesting story I'd like to share with you. You know, in World War I, they called it the war to end all wars. I wish it was so. 
It was a conflict that changed military tactics, it changed technology, and it had strategies that were, were part of World War I, which are just incredible how they, what was so different than any previous war. They had these things, trench warfare, where you had two opposing forces in trenches, and these were like uh, connected ditches to each other, not too far away from each other, and they would not only shoot guns at each other, but they're shooting uh, bombs at each other continually, day after day, and they were screeching over, sometimes they were landing in the, in the trenches, and they were killing and maiming thousands and thousands and thousands of people. Can you imagine what it would be like to be in one of those trenches day after day, not knowing what's gonna happen in life, well, I'll tell you what happened. Early in the war, medical personnel on both sides noticed an increased number of soldiers exhibiting nervousness, confusion, tremors, and even amnesia. Some called this severe malady shell shock. However, initially, it was not widely accepted as a medical condition. A lot of times, those people were called cowards. By the end of the war, there were numbers of soldiers who had lost the remembrance of who they were. They didn't even know who they were. Because of the scope of the conflict, records were not kept well. And these brave men lost their identity. Sometime after the war, their ideal gained traction. It was called, they were gonna have an identification rally in Paris. And imagine this, you're a man who's lost his identity and you would stand up on a stage in front of thousands of people that had been gathered, and you would say, does anyone know who I am? You know, sometimes that happens to Christ's followers. We lose the remembrance of who we are in Jesus, and we lose sight of who we are called to be for Jesus. Today I'm gonna to talk about Matthew 16 and 17, and help us hopefully recover our identity and our mission. That's my purpose today. As you might be aware, Matthew was written to a Jewish audience, wanted to make sure people knew who Jesus Christ was, that he was the son of God. The term identity has, is ground zero for culture wars today, isn't it? We hear about it a lot. Lots of labels have become common today. Labels aren't necessarily bad, but we've moved from using them to designate someone to now define someone and many times denigrate someone with labels. You know, we are not who others say we are in this room. We are who God says we are. We discover, if we discover who Jesus is, and we, it will lead us to discover who we are in Jesus. In Matthew 16, Jesus has 12 apostles that he's gonna take up to Caesarea Philippi. Now in Israel, Caesarea Philippi was a very different place than any other place. Because it was a place where there was a lot of pluralism of God worship, there was a lot of paganism that were associated with Caesarea Philippi. In fact, uh, the pri premier god that was worshipped there was Pan, half 
goat, half man. We take the words panic from his name. We take the word pan pandemonium from his name. These are all because he was the god of chaos. Can you imagine worshiping chaos? But that's what they did. Now, prior to reaching Caesarea Philippi, actually in, in Book of Mark, they talk a little bit about this, Mark 4, uh, a lot of Jesus' disciples have been saying, who is Jesus? Wait a minute. We know he grew up in Nazareth. But actually, do you guys know who he is? I'm wondering if he's something more than just a man. The disciples were starting to talk about this. And they get to Caesarea Philippi. Now, in this place of paganism and pluralism, Jesus selects this location to ask a key question of his disciples. In 1613 of Matthew, Jesus says, who do men say I am? And they respond with a really politically correct answer, I think. They say, you know, some people say you're John the Baptist. Some people say you're Elijah. Some people say Jeremiah. And some say maybe some other prophet we, can't, we haven't thought of yet. What they don't say to him is what a lot of people were saying about Jesus at the time. They were saying, you know, Jesus, he's a blasphemer. You know, Jesus, he's a drunkard who actually hangs out with sinners. That's what they were saying about Jesus, a lot of people, but they didn't actually say that to him. I thought that was kind of interesting. Now, Jesus gets even more direct with his apostles. He says, but what about you? Who do you say I am? You see, it really doesn't matter what everyone else thinks to, in Jesus' mind. He wants to know what you think about him. Everybody in this room. He wants to know who you think he is. Now, Peter, who always has an answer for everything, by the way, Peter has a stellar answer here, though. Give him, give him some street cred here. Man, he has a great answer. He says, in 1616, he says, Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Now, Peter says the word son of the living God, I think because he recognized where he was. He was in Caesarea Philippi. There's all these idols around. But he goes, you're not, one of, you're not son of these gods. You're son of the living God. And I don't know if Peter really fully understood what he was saying, but it was a really great answer. Okay, second passage I'd like to look at is in Matthew 17. Just the next, next chapter over. This is the story of the transfiguration. For this lesson that Jesus teaches, he doesn't take all 12 apostles. He only takes three. And they go up to a mountain near Caesarea Philippi. And Jesus turns into this human glow stick right in front of their eyes. And he's standing there. And all of a sudden, Moses and Elijah appear next to him and they're having like a conversation together and here you have these three apostles that are sitting here watching this going what is happening in front of us right here right and then Peter like I said Peter loved to talk I can relate to Peter I'll just say that I can really relate to Peter Peter says I got this great idea why don't we build like these shelters these little temples one to Jesus, one to Moses, one to Elijah. And we're going to build them right here, and we'll create like a whole tourist attraction here, and people are going to want to come just to see it. Right? All of a sudden, there's a voice from heaven that rolls over the mountain. 
In Matthew 17, 5 through 8, here's what it says. While he was still speaking, this is Peter speaking, a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down on the ground, terrified. Because they got called out by the voice, right? And, and all, but Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except for Jesus. Clearly, in this situation that we just talked about, God wants us to know who Jesus is. There was a story recently that came out about a woman by the name of Jessica Vincent. I don't know if you saw this story. I thought it was really interesting. So this, this woman, Jessica, loves to go into secondhand stores and see if she can find something cool. When she, and she loved it. That was kind of her hobby, to go in these stores. So Jessica walks into a Goodwill store and is looking around. And on a shelf, she sees this little vase. And she's going, oh, it grabs her attention. And she looks at it. She goes, that's really cool looking. I like that. I wonder what it, anything about it. She looks and she thinks about it a little bit. And she goes, you know, I'm just going to buy it. She pays $3.99 for this vase. Doesn't know anything about it. But let me tell you, this was her hobby. So she goes back home and she's, she ha she's on some blogs and, uh, and some Facebook pages with some other people, social media, that go and collect what I would call trinkets and trash. That's what she collects. And she's talking with them and she takes some pictures and she posts it. She says, does anyone know what this is? I just picked it up at the Goodwill store. And all of a sudden, it blows up for her. All these people are chiming in. Because it's not just people like Jessica on these blogs and in the social media Facebook page that she was on. There were collectors on there too. There were people that looked at it and they recognized it. They knew what it was. You know, Jessica decided to sell this little vase. That vase that she paid $3.99 for. She sold it at auction for $107,000. It's really important to know who or what you are if you're going to ever understand its value. So what's your identity? If you were introducing yourself somewhere, what would you say about yourself? You know, when you meet somebody for the first time, they say, oh, what do you do, right? Tell me about yourself. They may ask questions like that. How do you introduce yourself? Do you lean into what kind of car you drive? Some of us do that. Maybe where your house is or what your house is like. You get a lot, you feel like that's part of your identity. Does social media actually determine who you are? I hope not. Does your profession, your occupation, what you do, does that really give you any value? Really? Does how well you follow the Christian rules actually earn you any value? 
You know, I think there's only a couple of things that give you value. One, God created you, and he made you very uniquely. You are different than anyone else that's been created. And I believe that he does that uniquely because he has a plan for you. Frankly, most of us never discover what it is because we don't slow down and we don't listen and we don't try to figure it out because we have our own plan. But I think it's really important to know God created you. And guess what? Jesus died for you. The Son of Man died for you. That's incredible. We are who we are because it comes from God. As a result, therefore, each one of us, we're the son of the all-powerful. We're the daughter of the all-glorious. We're the child of the everlasting father. We're the brother and sister of the Prince of Peace. That's who our identity is. So what does this lesson mean to, to us? I can say these things and go, oh, that was nice, but what does that mean? First of all, remember and rest in your identity in Jesus, nowhere else. You don't have to be anyone else but who Jesus says you are. Satan, by the way, is always going to try to call you out by your sins. In Revelation 12, he called the great accuser. He loves when you focus on your sins. That's why he calls you by your sins. But Jesus calls you by your name. You are what Jesus says you are, and he is never ashamed to call you a brother or sister, son and daughter. In Hebrews 2, 10 through 11, it says, In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. That's you. You are Jesus' brother and sister. The second thing I want to encourage you about is to respond to and always follow through on your mission. In Luke 19, we're going to look at, think about this one a little bit. In particular, verse 9 and 10. But this is a story of Zacchaeus. Now, some of us grew up going to places like Mission Viejo all of our lives. And we learned a really important song. So I'm going to test you right here, okay? So... Uh, see if you're, I'm not going to sing it, don't worry, because I am a terrible, I need to have someone who could actually sing. I'll get Paul Maynard up here in a minute. He can sing like nobody's business. Uh, but anyway, I can't, so I'm not going to sing the song, but I want to ask you a question. Zacchaeus was a what kind of man? Wee little man. That's right. And he climbed up in a, why did he climb up in the sycamore tree to, for a, that's right. And Jesus comes up to this tree where the wee little man was. Kind of funny to think, say that now, right? He's a wee little man. And he says, Zacchaeus, I'm going to go to your house today. Now, does anybody remember what Zacchaeus' job was? He was a tax collector. That's exactly right. But let me tell you, he wasn't just a tax collector. 
He was the chief tax collector. And if you're a Jewish person working for the Romans collecting taxes, your, your life was at danger at all times. You are the most hated person in town. And now Jesus goes up to this man, and I don't exactly know why he, why he decided he wanted to see Jesus, but Jesus said, I'm going to your house today. Talk about provocative. Who do we hang out with? We usually hang out with people we like or people that are just like us. Jesus says, I'm going to go to Zacchaeus' house, and I'm going to tell everybody that I'm going to do it. And he goes to Zacchaeus' house, and they, start, and they have a meal together, which is, once again, in the Jewish world was a very sacred thing. They have a meal together. He gave honor to Zacchaeus by going to his house, by having a meal with him. And while they're there, Zacchaeus has this moment. He says, I want to repent, basically. I want to be a different person. In fact, anybody who I've taken money from, stolen money, which apparently he must have done a lot because he knew exactly what his sin was, he says, I'm going to pay him back four times. I'm going to make this right. I'm going to be a different person. And in verse 9, Jesus says to him, this is in Luke 19, verse 9, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man, too, is a son of Abraham. That phrase, son of Abraham, was the highest compliment you could give any Jewish person. He just gave it to the most hated man in town. Right? And in verse 10, key phrase here, Jesus says, For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. In particular, verse 10, Jesus just shared with us his mission, what he's about, why he's here, to seek and save the lost. And you know what? We're his disciples. It is therefore our mission to seek and save the lost. Now, when I use the term lost, it doesn't sound politically correct anymore, does it? To call somebody lost, right? That sounds kind of a different term. The world tells us to accept everyone's decisions as being correct for them. The world tells us that everyone's desires and perceptions are their truth and therefore they should be accepted. As a result, no one is really lost. In this world of GPS, we have one of these, wherever we go, right? By the way, share a little fact with you. Uh, somebody else who was an elder with Bob Crawford, a guy by the name of Hugo Fruhoff, used to go here to church. Hugo, uh, in 2019, was awarded the Queen Elizabeth Award for Engineering because he's the inventor of GPS. And he was a member here. But we lean into GPS a lot, don't we? So it never really feels like we're lost. I mean, sometimes, well, not sometimes, pretty much every day, sometimes a couple of times a day, I will say to my wife, Karen, can, do you know where my glasses are? I've lost them. And she'll say, oh, they're like four feet away from you, right there on the table. For some reason, I can't see them. They're, they're cloaked in, in some kind of invisibility situation, but my wife can always see them. I don't understand that, but that's kind of how us guys work sometimes. Uh, but 
I, you know, we don't, we may lose something for a few minutes, but we're not ever lost. I think we forgot what lost is all about. Okay, now that we're in Orange County, I remember a story I want to share with you. Now this happened at something that, that I'm not sure they have as much anymore. They're called malls. <laughs> and this was, is there still a Laguna Hills mall? No? Okay. So this was at Laguna Hills Mall. So that should date it a little bit, right? And there was a particular store in there that my kids loved. It was called KB Toys. And it wasn't that big of a store, but my kids loved going in there and just looking about the possibilities. And so, they, and so just to entertain them at times, my wife, Karen, would take them to KB stores, not buy them anything. We didn't have enough money, but she would take them so they could look at stuff. And so, and maybe every now and then she'd buy them something. But it was, a, she took them to KB stores, I don't know, once a week, just to kill some time. And so one day she takes my oldest son, who at this time would have been about four, and my 19-month-old daughter, Elizabeth. And she was pregnant at this point with our third child, very pregnant, probably at that point, 19-month-old. And she takes the two children up to KB Toys, walks in the store, and what happens with little kids a lot of times, one goes one way, the other one goes the other, and Karen's like, God, I gotta pick one of them. And she picks my son because I think the last time he had been in KB stores, he tore up, opened a, a, a toy and we had to buy it. So she wanted to make sure he didn't do it again. So she goes to Austin and she goes to him and she's like, oh, can't open the, can't tear the thing. She can't look inside of them. Okay, okay, I want mom. And then she goes over to find my daughter, Elizabeth who had just gone right. It was a small store, and she was on a different aisle. But she's not there now. So she goes, well, maybe she went to another aisle. She goes down the other aisle. She's not there. She ends up going down every aisle in the store. There's no Elizabeth. A 19-month-old child is gone. She goes up to the front cashier, and she said, I don't know where my child is. We just came in like five minutes ago, and she's gone. And so they go, well, look, maybe she went in the back room. Well, look there, and they go in the back room. She's not there. And so Karen's like starting to panic. You know, you know that feeling, do you remember this, ever losing a child? I know that sounds terrible, does it, to say that, but uh, we've all been there, you know, and you're five minutes in and you can't find your child and you start having all these worries. And so she starts going to the neighboring stores to say maybe she went in another store when I wasn't looking. But she can't find Elizabeth. She's not in any one of the neighboring stores. Now it's been like 20, 25 minutes. I mean, you know, we talked about the word panic because of chaos. This is her chaos moment. She is panicking. She goes to the mall security and she says, I can't find my child. Here's a picture of my child. Could you actually help me find my child? And they, you know, they start looking around as well, and pretty soon they, you know, and now we're 35 minutes into this without having seen our 19-month-old little girl. And they start talking about shutting down the mall, the doors, locking them down to watch anybody who comes in and out. And about that time, somebody calls into security, I found a child, and it was in a department store. Do you remember they used to have those makeup counters up front when you walked into the department stores and it was my sweet little inquisitive daughter decided to go behind the inside the 
the, where the makeup counter is, there was nobody actually working in this particular one, and started opening up cabinets and just kind of exploring what was inside them. And so she'd been there for all this time just looking at stuff. In the meantime, my wife was just, I mean, her, her stomach was in her throat, her heart was beeping rapidly, all the things because she had lost our daughter. Now this panic feeling goes to tears of joy. My daughter's been found. That's what being lost is all about. I want to remind you, that is how Jesus feels about anyone who doesn't accept his love. That's how Jesus feels. That overwhelming feeling of lost is also how we need to feel about our neighbor. We need to take ownership of that and feel that about our neighbor who doesn't know the fullness of Jesus' love and his grace because we are disciples of Christ. You see, the actual truth is God became man and lived on this earth. Jesus died and resurrected for every single human being. That means your next door neighbor. That means whoever teaches your son at school. That means the guy who is asking for money at the stoplight. He died for him. That he also died, by the way, for the people in the other political party. He died for them. He died for every single person on this globe, in every country, not just the Americans. He died for everybody. Without grace of Jesus, every one of us is lost. We're all lost. And my and your mission is to seek and save the lost. Nothing else is more important to us as disciples of Christ. Nothing. You know, in the Alamo, it's in San Antonio, Texas. I did spend some time in Texas as well. And to Texans, that's like the most sacred place there is, I think. They love the Alamo, by the way. It was a place of freedom for them in their history. Right or wrong, I'm not trying to take sides, but they really revered, the, it's revered by Texans. But when you walk in the door, there's all these portraits of heroes of the Alamo, men that fought the Mexican army, a very small force of men against a very large force of uh, army, Mexican army, and the Mexican army won. And all these men died. And they have uh, pictures of them, portraits. On a wall near the entrance, there is a portrait with the following encryption. James Butler Bonham. No picture of him exists. This portrait is of his nephew, Major James Bonham, deceased, who greatly resembled his uncle. It is placed here by the family that people may know the appearance of the man who died for freedom. We are all portraits of Jesus. Every single one of us are portraits of Jesus. We don't know exactly what Jesus looked like physically. Maybe he looked like Arnold Schwarzenegger when he was in a heyday, you know, pumped up. Maybe he looked more like Danny DeVito, I don't know. But we don't know what he looked like, but we are his portraits. The image of the one who makes us free ought to be seen in the lives of his followers. Jesus made us free. And all of us have been given the Great Commission. This is Matthew 28, 19 through 20. 
I love that you have this here, by the way. Thank you. These are the words of Jesus, the Son of the living God. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. I believe this is a vitally important passage for us, for each of us, because it was Jesus' final words before he ascended to heaven. Now, I still remember the day I first went off to college, the first time. And I loaded up my car, and I had about a six-hour drive. And before I left, my mom said, hey, Blair, I need to talk to you before you leave. Don't just drive off. And I said, okay, what do you need, mom? She said, there's a few things I want to make sure you know before you leave. These were her final words to her son driving off to go to college. She wanted to make sure that I didn't forget these words. I think that's kind of like the Great Commission. Right before Jesus left, it's almost like he said, hey, by the way, don't forget this. Whatever you do, don't forget this. And those were the words of the Great Commission. Many of us have forgotten the Great Commission is our assigned mission. Or maybe we've chosen to view it, view it as something that's not that important. Maybe it's an, we see it as an optional thing, like, hey, I'm not comfortable with that. Or that's not my gift. I've heard that expression. Maybe we say, hey, that's for the church staff to do. It's not my job. That's why we, have, that's why I hire, we hire a preacher here. They can do all the great commissioning they want. In turn, that's happening throughout our nation we're seeing. In turn, many of our churches are closing. Now, because we've decided to no longer live out the Great Commission, many of us have forgotten our mission and our identity. Therefore, we have lost our way. We are the ones who are lost. So, how do we regain our identity and our mission? I believe the most important thing you can ever do when you face a hard obstacle is turn to God in prayer. I think that we need a miracle, honestly. Whether it's in a wonderful place like Mission Viejo, I'm not sure, I don't know that much about this church, but I, think, I still think of it as my church, as you can tell, and I love this church. But also, I know there are a lot of churches hurting in this area that are struggling, that are trying to figure out what's next. They're stuck. I don't want Mission Viejo to be, ever be a stuck church, by the way. So let's start by praying together. So if you would, I want to set, lead us in, as I close out with a prayer a prayer for this church. And then I'll turn it back over uh, at the end here. So if you would bow with me. Our Father, we ask your forgiveness. We've been so caught up in this world and our own desires that we have forgotten many times who we are. And most of us have forgotten to be following the mission that you commanded us to do. Please open our eyes and soften our hearts. Give us courage to actually 
be Christians, followers of Christ and his disciples. Help us to accept our true identity and our mission as priority over everything else we do in our life. Help us to have the courage to put that above all else. I pray that you will bless Mission Viejo Church of Christ. May your church here be a great church and always be a lighthouse of faith in Southern California. And I pray that you will bring many who are lost to become saved through the efforts of every member here. We pray for a great harvest here, Lord. Boldly, Father, we want to be in prayer today to you. Specifically, I'm going to be very frank here, Lord, that during 2024, may you use the people that are here today to bring a great multitude who are now lost to find richness in your grace. Use this church and the people here to carry out your mission. We humbly ask this prayer in faith and in your son's name, who is our savior, amen. Thank you. Lord, the light of your love is shining in the midst of the darkness shining. Jesus, light of the world, shine upon us. Set us free by the truth you now bring us. Shine on me. Shine on me. Shine, Jesus, shine. Fill this land with the Father's glory. Blaze, Spirit, blaze. Set our hearts on fire. Flow, river, flow. Flood the nations with grace and mercy. Send forth your word, Lord, and let there be light. Lord, I come to your awesome presence. From the shadows into your radiance, by the blood I may enter your brightness. Search me, try me, consume all my darkness. Shine on me, shine on me, shine, Jesus, shine, fill this land with the Father's glory. Set our hearts on fire. Flow, river, flow. Flood the nations with grace and mercy. Send forth your word.